0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, hopefully tonight I'll uh, finish this series on voting, and then we'll get back to our normal routine on Sunday morning back in Revelation. A couple of announcements if you want to uh, be here Uh, well-rested on Sunday morning, then remember to set your clocks back an hour. If you don't remember, you'll just be here an hour early and you'll wonder if maybe the rapture occurred and you got left behind, but uh, there's always somebody who shows up early in the fall and somebody shows up at the end of class in the spring, so make sure it's not you. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship and ready to study God's word, and then we will, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you have blessed us with so many blessings because of this nation in which we live. You've given us freedom, and with this freedom, we have had the opportunity to study learn your word. And as our Lord said, it is your word that is truth, and it is on the basis of that truth that we are able to understand and evaluate all of the things that go on around us. We can uh, look at history, we can understand the trends of history, and as believers who are oriented to your truth and understand that you are the God who controls history, that no matter what the circumstances may be around us, we can relax and we can have joy and we can... Uh, have peace, and it doesn't depend upon political leadership or which party is in control or the successes or failures of government leaders. Because you are in control, we can uh, relax and we can have a, an objective, dispassionate view of what goes on around us, and we can be a source of strength and truth to, and light to those around us. We pray that as we wrap up this study tonight that we can Uh, again, understand more fully the role and purpose of government and how these divine institutions help us to uh, think, reflect upon leadership, and choose leaders that are most closely aligned to the uh, eternal principles of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have been engaged in this series on decision-making in the voting booth. And this is, I think I forgot, I didn't change the number, this is actually part six. This is part six. We started off with uh, certain assumptions. The assumptions relate to our understanding of who we are as believers, that everyone who is a citizen of the United States has an inherent responsibility to be involved in the process of government, at the very least to vote, and at times to be able to do more than that as christians we should take all of our responsibilities seriously including those related to our responsibility as citizens and that means we should vote wisely and intelligently and our role as citizens of this country is to preserve and defend the constitution and we should elect leaders that believe in the constitution and uh, we are our ultimate goal as believers is to do this to the glory of god therefore as u.s citizens in order to vote intelligently and wisely, we must understand the thinking that is embodied in the Constitution. And that thinking, even though there's, there are various strands of, of other thoughts that pop up here or there, the primary thought, the framework that influenced, that shaped the thinking of the founders, that shaped the very government that they established, comes directly out of Scripture. They understood it that way. We, we went through numerous quotes from founding fathers indicating that they understood that it was the Bible that was the bedrock of truth on which this nation would operate. And so in order to vote wisely and intelligently to preserve that Constitution, we must understand the thought that goes into it. And by understanding that biblical framework, we can then vote in a way that helps preserve and protect the Constitution and its freedoms. What underlies this is a doctrine known as the divine institutions. Five divine institutions that we've outlined are true for every human being, believer and unbeliever alike. Cultures, societies, nations that adhere closely to these divine institutions will have prosperity and success. They will, they will accumulate wealth. They will make an impact uh, in the world, and they will have stability. Nations that drift from these or try to change these will eventually fall apart. That's the idea. They are in, God embedded these in the very social structure of the human, human race. We stand in a conflict down through the ages between God's will and the will of Satan, the will of man in rebellion against God. And that produces a world, many worldviews all under the nomenclature of paganism, which is a technical for any non-biblical concept, any non-biblical worldview. And these various pagan views come together. Marxism, uh, Darwinism, uh, Freudianism, many of these that come out of the 19th century are directly opposed to biblical truth. So we live in the midst of this uh, culture war. That has been coming to a head for the last uh, 40 or 50 years in the United States. We began to look at these divine institutions and saw that the first three uh, relate to one another. They're all established before the fall, individual responsibility, marriage, and then family. The second, uh, the last part, the, the number four and five, the second section, deals with post-fall institutions that are established after sin, and we saw that the pre-fall institutions were designed to promote productivity and advance civilization, whereas the the uh, next two, government and nations, were designed to restrain evil. And we just began last time to look a little bit at the fourth divine institution of government, and we'll finish that, and nations, looking at them uh, together. And then the sixth uh, issue in decision-making for leaders it has to do with Israel and how the, the nation, how the government views Israel. I have some surprises for you, so I hope we actually do get there tonight. Uh, divine Institution, number one, individual responsibility. I broke down into three areas, spiritual accountability. Each individual is accountable to God for his relationship to God, his eternal position in relationship to God. The, secondly, we saw that this involved in the garden before the fall responsibility, labor. wasn't toilsome. It wasn't uh, uh, laborious in a negative sense. And man was to enjoy its fruits. And the founders understood that, that man was to work and the fruits belonged to the one who did the work and they were to enjoy its fruits. And those fruits, the wealth that was developed from that was private property and man had a right to private property. This is seen in a statement by Thomas Jefferson. To take from one because it is thought his own industry and that of his, that they, <clears throat> excuse me, to take from one because it is thought his own industry and that of his father's has acquired too much, in order to spare to others, another what he's saying is in order to give to others, who or whose fathers have not exercised equal industry. See, equal industry is, in their terminology, labor. Okay, so to take from one who's been industrious, and his fathers have been industrious and, they, and because you think they've acquired too much in order to give to others uh, who or whose fathers have not exercised equal industry and skill, is to violate arbitrarily the first principle of association. That's what he's referring to in terms of the first divine institution. The guarantee to everyone the free exercise of his industry and the fruits acquired by it. The founders understood the importance of the first divine institution that wasn't just something related to spiritual responsibility to God but to uh, but to labor. and of course, this is runs completely contrary to the world view that is espoused by one of the presidential candidates in fact it, it it runs contrary to 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 a lot of the thinking both candidates have because both of them buy into a certain degree. Of socialism and the idea that government is to supply uh, the needs for people, but but one candidate, Senator, Senator McCain, is not nearly as extreme as the other. Senator Obama borders on pure Marxism. In his statement, share the wealth, which he's very proud of, shows that 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 those who don't have, that haven't worked, that haven't accumulated, uh, need to be provided for on the basis of, of taking from those who have worked, who have risked, who have spent 20, 30, 40 years building a business, developing income, risking sometimes losing their their fortunes two or three times. And now when they finally get there to have the government come, ar- come around and to take it from them, and if you're not aware of this, just a, a little preview of coming attractions, if we get a, uh, Democrat. If, if we get the Trinity from Hell, a Democrat-controlled Senate, uh, uh, Congress, Senate, House, and White House, because there's already been hearings in the House of a proposal, because they're afraid that you, if you risk your money, and people have risked their money in their 401ks, that the government just can't let people risk anymore. They got have to protect us from uh, our own bad decisions. And so what they are investigating is coming in and having a new program where they're going to basically confiscate the money in everybody's 401Ks and put it into uh, the Social Security plan, and then everybody gets to designate uh, approximately 6%, I think, of of their income to go... Uh, into a, quote, retirement plan that is government-run and government-controlled. And so and I love the uh, one member of the church sent me a great little uh, illustration the other day that, uh, about trusting the government to handle all of our money and to control all these things. Back in 1990, uh, the federal government took over the uh, Mustang Ranch House of Ill Repute in Nevada. And after a few years, they had to close it. And we're going to trust our money and our income and stability to this bunch of political nitwits who can't even make money running a a cat house and selling booze in Nevada. But the American people are willing to trust anybody other than have to work, it seems. And when we have 44% of the population on the dole, not paying taxes, not contributing to the support of the government, then they're not putting anything at risk. And so it's interesting that the same percentage of people in this country that are not paying taxes uh, is the same percentage of people who responded affirmatively in a poll that they did not think that socialism was all that bad. So we looked at the first divine institution. The second divine institution was marriage. Again, the founding fathers understood the principle of marriage being between one man and one woman and that this was a bedrock institution that could not be changed. James Wilson, who was a signer of the Declaration and one of the first associate justices on the Supreme Court, said the most important consequence of marriage is that the husband and the wife become Uh, In law, only one person. Upon this principle of union, almost all the other legal consequences of marriage depend. And so what we have today, though, is that uh, this desire to change the very nature of what marriage is. And an editorial in the Investor's Business Daily stated the consequences of this. The slippery slope has been greased. If two men can marry, why not more than two? Are laws against polygamy also a violation of our constitutional rights? Was the Texas cult legal? That's a reference to the fundamentalist Mormon sect that they had the problem with last spring. There you had a lot of people in a committed relationship raising a lot of children. Heterosexual marriage is not some right-wing plot to deny homosexuals their rights. It's an institution sanctioned, not invented by, but sanctioned, that means recognized and affirmed, an institution sanctioned by all successful nations and cultures because of a compelling interest in a stable, growing society with heterosexual marriage providing a sturdy framework for both procreation and the orderly upbringing of children. That gets into this third divine institution of family, that the role of family is training Training children, teaching children, it's a responsibility of family to teach children, not the public government-run, government-financed school, not uh, the church school, not even Sunday school to teach your kids a doctrine. It's the responsibility of parents to teach these things to uh, the children and to train them. They're the ones who are going to be held accountable. When you're before the judgment seat of Christ... The issue in terms of your parental responsibilities is not going to be how well, what kind of school did you send your kids to. It's going to be what did you do to train your kids to walk in the way of the Lord. So this article goes on to say, Opponents of the decision will try to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November. It's a reference to that decision made by the uh, Supreme Court in California, State Supreme Court. That may be the only way to ensure that activist judges don't further unravel the fabric of society and that government of the people has not become government by just for people, judicial tyranny. And that, by the way, is exactly what uh, Thomas Jefferson recognized, is that when you have uh, uh, people who have worked hard, and they have accumulated possessions and accumulated wealth, and then the government comes in and redistributes that to anyone, that is tyranny. That is, to put it in other terms, that's criminality. It's just thievery. It's one thing to have a right to tax in order to supply the needs of the government, uh, highway construction, support for the military, uh support for government officials and and the operation of the government but to have as a government agenda an economic policy of redistributing money to take from those who have to give to those who have not is nothing more than tyranny and robbery now we looked at the begin at the end last time i wanted to lay down the biblical foundation for government And that was in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And at the very core is the idea of the judiciary and the delegation of the responsibility to judge and to carry out penalties, criminal penalties, to the degree of taking a life in a capital uh, crime such as murder. And this is laid down in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. Where God said surely I will require your life blood from every beast I will require it from every man from every man's brother I will require the life of man whoever sheds man's blood by his blood by man his blood shall be shed now to do that you ha- that that entails thinking through the entire judicial process how are you going to determine uh whether who's guilty how are you going to determine whether it was justified uh, killing, or whether it was uh, premeditated homicide. That's what the commandment means in the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean thou shalt not kill. It's, the Hebrew word is a word that means murder. So that entails development of the whole judicial process. Now, it wasn't long after that, a couple of hundred years after the flood, that you have the first use of the word kingdom in the Bible. And... Nimrod, who was a descendant through Ham, decides to establish his own kingdom over against God. It is religiously oriented. And so this is the beginning of what we see in the Bible as the kingdom of man, man's attempt to establish peace, prosperity, happiness, uh, economic stability, uh, share the wealth. From the very, uh, from these early days over against obedience to God. God's mandate coming off the ark was to do what? To scatter, to multiply, fill the earth, and, and man failed to do that. So the, uh, the, the kingdom of, of Babel uh, set up this tower in Shinar, and it had a specific agenda against God. It had a religious orientation. It was a response and a reaction to God because of the judgment at the flood and that they were going to build this tower high enough to reach heaven. The idea is that somehow we will protect ourselves from this mean, nasty uh, God who's going to interfere with human history and kill uh, everybody who uh, resists him. And so this is a very famous painting of the Tower of Babel. And it was internationalism. It was all of mankind coming together together, against God and so God judged them by confusing the languages because up until that point everybody spoke the same language so everybody could communicate and the whole human race could gang up against God so he divides the languages and he does that And a result of that is it's going to force people to go off into their separate corners of the world with just those people that they can understand, they can communicate with. And so this is the beginning of nations, the beginnings of separation of tribes, clans, which eventually develop into nations. But man keeps thinking that he can resist God by establishing a, a unity of man against God, and we've been studying in the book of Revelation that this is exactly the kind of thinking that will come about in the end times, under the leadership of the Antichrist, a one-world government that will be united against God. And we see the hardness of the heart that we studied this on Sunday morning, where we see how the earth dwellers continue to resist God. They they shake their fist in the face of God, no matter how much. Judgment God pours out, they just refuse to accept the truth, and their anger is 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 irrational it, it's it's palpable you can you just can't understand how these people can be that way and perhaps we see a little glimmer of that kind of uh, of hardness of heart and blindness to the truth in the way numerous people in this election cycle have aligned themselves on one side of the political spectrum uh, and the anger and resentment that's there if anybody tries to question their candidate and bring up anything other than any kind of questions other than just lobbying uh, softballs at their candidates. In fact, uh, when uh, it was so appalling to watch a vice presidential candidate being interviewed by a news person out of uh, Orlando, Florida last week, and when she started asking very good questions about how he c- could support the socialist agenda of uh, Senator Obama, he just got angry with her. He wouldn't answer the questions. He says, well, who's writing your stuff? Who, who made this stuff? These are, these are silly questions. And there is this te- this debater's technique that, that um, uh, the Obama camp is masterful at of minimizing, ridiculing uh, the the other side, and they don't answer the questions; they just turn it back. For example, yesterday or last night in a speech, uh, Obama said, "Well, what? How can McCain call me a, a, a socialist?" He doesn't answer the question; doesn't say, "I'm not a socialist." He just says, "How can he do that?" He, he ridicules that position, and demeans and minimizes the opposition that way, which is a very effective. A technique as part of uh, passing uh, the big lie. Well, in the end times, we're going to see this uh, reunification idea of mankind in terms of internationalism, and we see that even today. For example, in Europe, you have the uh, the EU, the European Union. This is a picture of their translation headquarters in Strasbourg, which was self-consciously built to Picture the unfinished Tower of Babel, according to the architect. This is their translation headquarters, and it's to depict the idea that they are going to uh, change and reverse the course that God started at the Tower of Babel. And this idea is nothing new. We have the same kind of theological underpinnings, religious underpinnings, in the UN, the United Nations, outside the UN building, we have this quote from Isaiah 2, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And Isaiah 2 says that that condition is brought about by the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes to establish his kingdom in Israel. But you have the U.N. coming in and saying, this is what we're going to do. Now you have the E.U. doing that. And and people need to understand that there is a religious agenda at work behind these uh, organizations. And so we do not need presidents or anybody who supports the U.N. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the ideal candidate who despises the U.N. and would have an agenda to get out of the U.N., and, uh, one being someone who, uh, is totally in bed with the UN. I think that w- probably we would classify McCain as about a four and Obama as a one. And so, and, but the th- problem is, is that we don't have any conservatives, leaders in Congress or anywhere who are willing to take a stand against the UN. And so they continue to accept a certain legitimacy to internationalism. Uh, as far as Senator Obama is concerned, he supported the Senate Bill 2433 this last winter, came for, up for a vote in February, that was entitled euphemistically the Global Poverty Act, and it was designed to end global poverty. And what it would have required was various nations give a certain percentage of their gross national product, uh, gross domestic product, to the U.N., And for the U.S., it would have required 0.7% of the GDP to go to the U.N., which would have been $845 billion over 13 years. Now, if you're going to cut taxes, as he claims to do, you can't pay these kinds of bills. You can't fund all the social programs that... Uh, that he has, and this would have been a mandatory federal tax that the nation would have had to pay uh, to the U.N., basically putting us under the authority of the United Nations. Uh, Further, in uh, last year, further back, in September 17, 2007, uh, in a speech, Obama outlined his plan for Iraq was to have the U.S. leave Iraq and to be replaced by a U.N. peacekeeping force, including troops from Syria and Iran. Of course, that would have been... Uh, just extremely, uh, extremely helpful, don't you know? Now, when we look at Scripture and develop a biblical view of government, you start in Genesis chapter 9. Then the next place to go is in the Mosaic Law, because in the Mosaic Law, God is going to give a constitution, a law code to the nation Israel that is going to embody these divine institutions as the foundation, and we get to see one way in which that's put into practice in a national law code. Now, does that mean that every nation should just imitate that? No, but it means that this gives us a pattern, a model on, on which to build, which is what the early uh, early fathers of this nation did. This is why it's just such a, a historical uh, aberration, a revisionism, to take displays of the Ten Commandments out of, uh, out of the courts. It's a denial of our, of our history. Well, the Mosaic Law says certain things about uh, the role of government. One thing we pointed out is in taxation, there were th- three different tithes. A tithe was a 10% tax for the support of the bureaucracy, which were the Levites and the priests, because it was a, a theocracy. Now, a theocracy means that it is a government that is ruled by priests in, who stand in the place of God. So... You had these three tithes, and the third tithe was to be taken up only once every third year, and that was to provide for widows and orphans. So it's not that government shouldn't have some sort of a safety net out there for those who just can't work, can't take care of themselves, can't provide for themselves, but it's minimal. It's not done on the backs of just the wealthy. We're going to see some key scriptures related to uh, <clears throat> the wealthy and the poor, in uh, in just a minute, but that that tax was like an income tax. It was 10%, but it was a flat rate. It didn't assess a higher percentage of the from the wealthy and a lower percentage from the poor. Everyone, rich or poor, had to give 10%. Of course, if you didn't make much, if you only made ten thousand a year, and you only have to give 10%, then you only give a thousand a year. But if you make a million dollars, you have to give 100000 So So uh, you give a lot more if you're wealthy than if you're poor, but it's the percentage that makes it uh, just and righteous. So when you have a progressive tax system as we have in this nation, it is unrighteous. And we've seen passages in Scripture that the goal of government is to function in a uh, righteous manner. Now, in terms of the uh, executive, there was an understanding in... The law that there would eventually be a king and there are requirements for the king laid down in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and the key verses are verses 18 and 19. Now it shall come to pass. It shall come about when he that is the king sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. The king is under a higher authority. The king is not, it's not this divine right idea that you had developing in Europe in the uh, 1500s and early 1600s. The king is under the law and under God. And this was seen in the fact that every king in Israel had to be anointed by the prophet who was God's representative. So the king is not an autonomous authority. The government is not autonomous. It's, it operates under, under the authority of God. And this was an idea that, that, got, uh, that was understood and developed by the uh, Puritans in the uh, 17th century in England, and a very famous and influential book entitled Lex Rex was written by Samuel Rutherford, and the title means that the law is king, not that the the king is not the law. The law is king, and the king serves under the law. Uh, Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian theologian, and it was Scottish Presbyterian ideas to a large degree that influenced the thinking in the American colonies. There was this huge migration of Scots-Irish uh, Presbyterians that came. Uh, first they were in Scotland, then they, for a while they were in Ireland, then they uh, migrated to North America, in the, of course, in the 1600s and 1700s, but there was an enormous wave that came in the middle period of the, of the 1700s. And um, that had a tremendous impact. Many of them went into the south, spread across the south, and just had a phenomenal impact on on southern culture. So <clears throat> the influence of these ideas is that law is over the king. now, in First Samuel eight, we have our next key passage on uh, as a warning from God on the abuse uh, abuse of power that can come. From a king. This happens when Israel finally gets to a point where they have rejected God as the the king. They no longer want uh, theocracy as originally set up by the Mosaic covenant, and they want to have a king like all the other nations. So uh, Samuel took it personally, went to God. God said, Don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so I want you to go tell the people what they're going to get when they get centralized government. Verse 11 states, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He's going to build a bureaucracy. He's going to uh, build a large government and what is going to run the government. The government is not productive. People of industry are out farming and agriculture. They're the ones who are productive. They're producing the wealth in the culture, not the government. The government is ju- just sort of sucks uh, the, the wealth out of those who are industrious, which is what this is pointing out. And the larger government grows, then the more of a demand it puts on people. So one of the issues is how big is government going to get under this particular president. And it is predicted on the basis of all of his plans that under Obama the government would see its largest ex- economic expansion, the largest expansion of government uh, ever in the history of the United States. And this is extremely dangerous, and the larger government gets the less freedom and liberty that people have. And so this is dangerous. Now, it's still going to grow under McCain, because that has been the the direction the government has gone. I think many conservatives were extremely chagrined and disappointed and angry with the current president because of the way he allowed government to grow under his administration. And we thought we were going to get somebody who would go for limited government, and we got just the just the opposite. So I have very little hope and confidence in either one of them in this area, but at least theoretically we know that uh, McCain is not nearly as bad as Obama. Uh, verses 13 through 15 continue to talk about how all of this is going to expand in these particular verses. I'm not going to go through all of them, but it just talks about how this becomes such an overwhelming Uh, burden to the people when the government expands. So what we see in summary, what the responsibilities of government are, are biblically are very limited. They're designed to promote righteousness. So the government is to protect people from criminality, protect people from injustice, those who would abuse the system and abuse others and to protect the state from uh, outside enemies. So that means they have to provide for national defense, and they have to understand the nature of the enemies that are around us. And this is, a, 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 to me, this is one of the major issues that we're facing today. We have the rise that we've seen over the past uh, uh, 30 years of radical Fundamentalist is, Islam, and that this, I believe, is inherent to the teachings of the Quran, and it's not something that's inconsistent uh, with the Quran. Violence to promote Christianity is inconsistent with the Bible, so people can't go to the Crusades and say, "Well, see, the, you know, you have Christians who get violent as well." Uh, that's that is an aberration and yet we have a president, sitting president today who believes that Islam is a peaceful religion, and uh, Obama, the danger with him is all of his, his Muslim relatives. That puts a pressure on an individual that when you're, you have had some exposure in his youth to Islam, to moderate Islam, and you have uh, extended family that are uh, Islamic, That puts a pressure on you to be less objective in an environment where we don't have government officials who are objective to begin with. Islam is the enemy. This is a religious war because they have made it a religious war. It doesn't have anything to do with the motivation of the West. It has been a religious war since Muhammad founded Islam, and you had the initial attempt to invade Europe back in the... Uh, 8th century and the defeat at the uh, Battle of of, uh, Poitiers uh, under um, Charles the Hammer. And then you have uh, the later victory when the Muslim hordes were stopped outside the gates of Vienna in the 16th century. But they continue to push, continue to push. And every time they get money and financing, they continue to try to uh, dominate the West. I don't think they ever will. That's my opinion, simply because of the prophecies related to Noah's Noah's sons. But we have to have a man who has objectivity, who understands the issues to promote a solid national defense. John Adams uh, made the point that national defense is one of the cardinal, cardinal duties of a statesman. One of the cardinal duties of a statesman. So we have to have men who can think honestly and objectively about, about the nation. Now. A question that arises when we talk about this, and we talk about the fact that the, the, the government's supposed to promote righteousness, well, righteousness is a value. Well, where are you going to get that value? Are you going to get it from from the Bible? You're going to have an Islamic uh, value of righteousness. You're going to have a secular humanist value of righteousness. Where are you going to go to get get your value of righteousness? And and in the founding fathers' thinking, in the nation as it existed at that time, we had a homogeneous society that was for the most part theistic. In their worldview and had a strong Christian background, and we don't have that anymore. And so that raises the whole question of what is the role of Christianity in the state. And I want to look at this initially from just, and I think just a minute about its uh, impact in, in the early, uh, early years in the late 1700s. And at that time, uh, the vast majority of Americans living in the early United States were Christian in a broad sense. Even if they did not believe in a trinity as Jefferson did not, he was not Trinitarian, he was Unitarian, he was not a deist. He was a Unitarian, but Unitarians at that time believed the Bible was, was still God's word and believed that there was truth in the Bible. And you had key people, like I mentioned uh, uh, in the first day of this series, some of the early preachers that were very influential in Boston, like Charles Chauncey and Jonathan Mayhew, were, were Unitarians. But the Unitarian of the 1700s is not the same as the Unitarian Universalist of today. But So there's a difference. They did understand and appreciate the value of the Bible. You had uh, pastors who were from Roman Catholics to Puritans, uh, Arminians, Unitarians, Presbyterians. Uh, The Methodism was just beginning to start at that time. The dominant influence, though, in the U.S. was from a Calvinistic Reformed uh, background, whether it was Presbyterian or Congregational or Huguenot, or just what it was, but they all agreed, no matter what their sectarian view was, in other words, whatever their denominational view was, they all had a general agreement that the Bible represented truth, and it was that foundation that uh, was embedded in the Constitution. They did not think of it as a theocracy. And what bothers me is you have some people today... Who accused the Christian right of of being wanting to uh, impose a theocracy on the nation? And that's to me that's just that's historically wrong, Uh, and and it's actually wrong. I know some of these men, Tim LaHaye, I've met and talked some with Jerry Falwell, and many others who are have been influential in the so-called Christian right, and they did not want to impose. A, you know, Christianity or theocracy in that sense in America, but they understood that if you don't keep the country going on the principles on which it was founded, that it will fall apart, and that's exactly what the founders said. A theocracy, by definition, look it up in the OED or Webster's, it's defined as a system of government where priests rule in the name of God. No one has ever thought that the Congress of the United States or the president or the judiciary would rule in the name of God. But they did understand that Christianity as a way of thinking, as a, as a philosophy, as an ethical system, was the only sure and certain foundation to thinking that could preserve genuine liberty. And so they did not see a conflict with being influenced with having pastors come and address the legislature. That didn't mean that whatever the pastor said they were going to do. It just meant that they had to understand the word of God and seek God's thinking on uh, leadership manners uh, matters. They all understood this very, very clearly. And, uh, for example, we have various statements by... Uh, Early founders, such as George Washington, said it's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Now, some of your, some of the contemporary writers today who analyze religious statements by the Father say, see, this is more deistic, it's distant, uses terms like Almighty God, Providence, uh, Supreme God, uh, the Creator. That's how they talk that time. You can go to men like Patrick Henry and others that had, uh, Sam Adams, others who had very rich, profound spiritual lives and relationship with God, and they use the same terms. This is just how people in that generation talked about God. To us, this may seem a little distant or uh, less, less involved, less personal, but that's not how uh, they understood it. Washington said it's a duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly implore his protection and favor. Uh, Adams, second president of the United States, said the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend on the protection and the blessing of Almighty God, and the national acknowledgment of this truth is an indispensable duty which the people owe to him. And he believed, and others believed, that if they lost that, then the republic would collapse. And this, unfortunately, is what we are witnessing today. And only believers really have the framework, the truth, the light, to be able to understand this. We need need to remember what Paul said to the Philippians, that we need to live our lives and go forth as, as a flashing light uh, to those, to the Gentiles, the nations around us, because we're the ones who have the truth. Now, part of the responsibility of the government, as I've pointed out, is to ensure an environment where righteousness is not hindered, and righteousness is equally applied to all people, rich or poor, uh, mighty or not. Everyone is to have. Uh, be dealt with in equal uh, righteousness, and this extends to uh, the poor. For example, Deuteronomy 15:7 says, "If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart." He's talking to the individuals, not to the government. You shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. It's up to the individual to have compassion and care to help others. It's not the government's responsibility. In uh, Deuteronomy fifteen eleven, we read, For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother to your needy and poor in the land. So it's the individual's responsibility to take care of the, the poor. You see the same thing in the New Testament. And here it's the responsibility of the church, Galatians 2.10. Paul says, the only, uh, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the same idea you see of, as part of wisdom in Proverbs 21.13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not Be answered. In Exodus 23, verses 3 and 6, we read, Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. And yet, the very thing that we're seeing in uh, the government philosophy, the judicial philosophy of uh, Senator Obama, is that to uh, appoint judges that are empathetic to the poor. Because if you haven't been there and you don't understand them, then you can't deal with justice. And that's just hogwash, to put it very politely. Uh, Exodus 23, 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his disputes. On the one hand, you don't give impartiality to the poor, but on the other hand, you don't abuse him either. It is an equal standard, and you don't take into account the economic status of the individual. Leviticus 19.15, if you you shall do no injustice in judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Proverbs 29.14, if a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. Yet, Senator Obama says that we need somebody who's got the heart. The empathy to recognize what it's like to be a young teenage mom, the empathy to understand what it's like to be poor or African American or gay or disabled or old, and that's the criteria by which I'm going to select my judges. That is an unrighteous, an unethical standard that is going to result in tyranny because who's going to set the standard of, of, and prefer one over Uh, one over another. That's when we get into uh, this kind of problem, and it results in the same kind of philosophy that we have that we've seen uh, before related to uh, Obama is that he just wants to spread the wealth. He wants to spread your wealth. If you're working and you have a job, he wants to take money out of your bank account and give it to people who don't work. Uh, This runs, uh, it's consistent with his whole philosophy. He stated in a radio interview in 2001 that the basic problem that you had with the Warren Court and with the Civil Rights Movement was that it didn't break free from the essential constraints that were placed by the founding fathers in the Constitution. Did you hear that? That the problem is that the courts didn't break free from those restraints. Those restraints are what give us liberty and freedom. This is a man that is about to be elected, perhaps, to the presidency of this country, and he, at his very core of his being, believes that the U.S. Constitution is unrighteous, and it is embedded in unju- injustice, and yet he's going to be asked to be, possibly, to be the President of the United States. This is just a, an you know, absolutely ridiculous. It is treasonous. Cicero, a Roman statesman and lawyer, said, a nation can survive its fools. I think that's debatable. And even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable, for he is known and carries his manner openly. But the traitor moves amongst those within the gate freely, his sly whispers rustling through all the alleys, heard in the very halls of government itself. For the traitor appears not a traitor. He speaks in accents familiar to his victims, and he wears their face and their arguments. He appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of a nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of the city. He infects the body politic so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to fear. The traitor is the plague." it is important for us to make sure that we elect leaders that are at least the closest that we can find to a righteous standard, the closest that we can find to a righteous standard. And that means supporting these five divine institutions. Now, there's one more criteria we should use, and I want to cover that very briefly in the next seven or eight minutes before we wrap up and that is the question of a nation's relationship to the Jewish people and to Israel as a state, Uh, how a nation views the Jews. Those who are antagonistic to the Jews are anti-Semitic, and throughout history God has judged anti-Semitic nations, even when God raised up those nations, such as Assyria and Babylon and Rome, raised them up to bring discipline on Israel because God could use them in a military manner to wipe out Israel, but they didn't have to succumb to anti-Semitism. When they did, then God judged them. And this is grounded on the principle of Genesis 12.3, those who bless you, he promised Abraham, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. God will judge those who treat the Jew unrighteously and unfairly and who treat Israel unfairly. Now when you bring up Israel, you bring in this whole question of Zionism. What is Zionism? And see some people get the idea that if you're you're talking about supporting Israel, that that means you agree with every decision they make. Well, that's not that's not true at all. There are many decisions that have been made in the history of Israel and its founding that we're unrighteous, and that doesn't mean that we support that. What we support is the uh, right of the Jewish people to a national homeland, to national sovereignty, homeland and land that is established by law and was established by law, was given to them by law, an international agreement, and that they have a right uh, to defend that. And that is what Zionism is. Zionism doesn't say that you have to support everything Israel did. There were atrocities committed by the Irgun during the War of Independence in 1948. There have been many other decisions that have been made that uh, we just can't support. But that is not the essence of, that's not what Zionism is all about. Zionism is the belief that the Jewish people have a right to their own nation in the land God gave to Abraham. And guess what? This belief was uh, was held by many of the leaders in American history and early American history. For example, John Quincy Adams desired that the Jews again would be able to go to Judea and establish an independent nation, uh, once restored to an independent government, and no longer persecuted. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, believed that Uh, the Jews should be restored to their homeland, that this he referred to as a noble dream shared by many Americans. And he referred to, uh, he said in a conversation with Canadian Christian Zionist Henry Monk uh, that uh, the Jewish chiropodist of the president has so many times put me on my feet that I would have no objection to giving his countrymen a leg up. So the the, the nation, uh, America had a positive view of the Jews, opened their doors to the Jews from the colonial period on and saw this as important. And this was part of the whole move, as we've studied in the past, to establish Israel in the land. In Britain, you had British restorationism. You have the very uh, uh, well-known Balfour Declaration, which is the foundation. Oh, hit too many buttons, too fast. Stop and go back. Balfour grew up at his mother's knee reading the Bible. He's reared in a Christian home where he was taught the Old Testament. He wrote a book on Christian philosophy and theology. He had many high offices in British government and prime minister, and he was the one who wrote the statement that was the legal foundation for Israel being granted by the British government coming out of World War I a national homeland. This is known as the Balfour Declaration. Here's a photocopy of the original declaration, which reads, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. This was voted on, it was the wording was approved by the British cabinet on October 31st of 187, I mean 1917, and then on November the 3rd it became official policy of the British Empire. Prior to World War 1, the Ottoman Turks had ruled the area from 1516 to 1918. And it was viewed as just part of southern Syria. It was just a district within the Ottoman Empire. There was no Palestine, uh, per se, country per se. There was no Syria. If you see on the map, there's no Jordan. There's no Saudi Arabia. You didn't have any nations there. Th- those were carved up artificially by the breakup of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I. Here's another map that you can see. That there's there's just the Arabian Peninsula where you have various independent Arab states. You have Mesopotamia in the area of modern Iraq. At Persia, which did exist, they're not Arabs. They're a totally separate person, uh, totally separate nation. They weren't under, um, weren't in the Ottoman Empire. And you have just the region of Palestine. This was just just an administrative district within the Ottoman Empire. But after World War I, you see the carving up of Syria and Lebanon, Iraq, Transjordan, uh, Palestine, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, th- these particular areas. And during the war, there was a secret agreement made uh, between the French and the British called the Sykes-Picot Treaty that w- said that they would carve up the, this area of the Middle East into different zones of of uh, occupation after the war, and in 1918, the League of Nations gave uh, the a mandate to the French to administer the northern area, the blue zones, and the British to administer the red zones and the pink zone, the B zone there. Those those areas, and uh, there was established a mandate based on the. Uh, based on the Le- League of Nations from 1920 to 1946, and we see these boundaries here. And this was to be given to the Jews. All of this land was to be given uh, to the Jews based on the legal document of the Balfour Declaration and the mandate of the of the uh, League of Nations. But after a while, due to pressure from the Arabs, because oil had just been discovered prior to World War One. Uh, the British began to fold. Their high-water mark was the Balfour Declaration. From there on, they just just began to fold. And so they decided they would give Jordan to the Arabs. Now, what we need today is politicians, leaders in America, that will say, Palestinians want a homeland? It's called Jordan, the land on the uh, west side of the Jordan River. That's Israel. If you want to live in a Palestinian state, go to Jordan. That was the legally established Palestinian state the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan coming out of World War I. And and the uh, uh, UN was initially going to give them all of the land to the west of the Jordan, but, of course, they uh, backed it. Out of that and in 1947, they had another partition plan just giving Israel very small portions of land, nothing that was, very little integrated or, or land that, that, that uh, would give them uh, strong defensible area, and a lot of the area, especially down south here in the Negev, was was uh, just desert. So the point that I'm making is we have to have leaders who recognize the legality of Israel's right to that land, and who stand up and tell the Palestinians that they're just a bunch of liars. And there's no such thing as a Palestinian homeland, Palestinian state, or Palestinian people. This has just been made up. And those who are not Zionists are are basically anti-Semitic. Now, there are a lot of people who want to argue that. There's a lot of debate about that. But I found an extremely articulate statement today uh, defending the position that anti-Zionism is indeed anti-Semitism. And, and today, that's really beca- it's not politically correct to be anti-Semitic because of, uh, what, because of the Holocaust, so it's cloaked in anti-Zionism. And this individual wrote the following. This is a letter, and it's, it's an important letter, and I think it's important to read the entire letter. When it's done, I'll tell you who wrote it. Zionism, this person stated, is nothing less than the dream and ideal of the Jewish people returning to live in their own land. The Jewish people, the scriptures tell us, once enjoyed a flourishing commonwealth in the Holy Land. From this they were expelled by the Roman tyrant, the same Romans who cruelly murdered our Lord. Driven from their homeland, their nation in ashes, forced to wander the globe, the Jewish people time and again suffered the lash of whichever tyrant happened to rule over them. Key thought is Zionism is the dream for the Jewish people to live in their own land. That is all it means, and to defend that. In this letter, this individual wrote, You declare, my friend, that you do not hate the Jews. You are merely anti-Zionist. And I say, let the truth ring forth from the high mountaintops. Let it echo through the valleys of God's green earth. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. This is God's own truth. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people, has been and remains a blot on the soul of mankind. In this we are in full agreement. So know also this, anti-Zionist is inherently anti-Semitic and ever will be so. The Negro people, my friend, know what it is to suffer the torment of tyranny under rulers not of our choosing. Our brothers in Africa have begged, pleaded, requested, demanded the recognition and realization of our inborn right to live in peace under our own sovereignty in our own country. How easy it should be for anyone who holds dear this inalienable right of all mankind to understand and support the right of the Jewish people to live in their ancient land of Israel. All men of goodwill exult in the fulfillment of God's promise that his people should return in joy to rebuild their plundered land. This is Zionism, nothing more Nothing less. And what is anti-Zionism? It is the denial to the Jewish people of a fundamental right that we justly claim for the people of Africa and freely accord all other nations of the globe. It is discrimination against Jews, my friend, because they are Jews. In short, it is anti-Semitism. The anti-Semite rejoices at any opportunity to vent his malice. The times have made it unpopular. In the West, to proclaim openly a hatred of the Jews. This being the case, the anti Semite must constantly seek new forms and forums for his poison. Now he must revel in the new masquerade. He does not hate the Jews, he is just anti Zionist. My friend, I do not accuse you of deliberate anti Semitism. I know you feel as I do a deep love of truth and justice and a revulsion for racism, prejudice, and discrimination but I know you've been misled, as others have been, into thinking you can be anti-Zionist and yet remain true to these heartfelt principles that you and I share. Let my words echo in the depths of your soul. When people criticize Zionism, they mean Jews. Make no mistake about it. And this was written in a personal letter from Martin Luther King, Jr. and was published in the Saturday Review. In contrast... To this great statement on anti-Zionism, we had the statement last week of Jesse Jackson that Zionists, talking about Barack Obama, that Zionists who have controlled American policy for decades will lose a great deal of their clout when Barack Obama enters the White House. Of course, the next day, he recanted. He didn't say he was wrong. He just said he shouldn't have said that. He never backed off of his statement. And of course, the Obama campaign comes running out saying, no, 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 we're not anti Semitic. Uh, that can't be true. And yet the question remains if he's not anti Zionist and anti Semitic, why does a leader of his stature continuously surround himself? He didn't have just one association with a known anti Zionist, anti Israel terrorist, but Consistently for over 30 years, they have had relationships with radical leftists such as uh, Edward Said, and pictured here, in, they're pictured here in a banquet, both Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, they have uh, had a close relationship with, of course, with Bill Ayers. Uh, he's been on several, served on several boards. With Rashid Khalidi, he tries to dismiss all of this, but there's a pattern here that is extremely worrisome, and not to mention the fact that uh, recently he's been touted as the Messiah by the head of uh, uh, the Nation of Islam, uh, Louis Farrakhan. Uh, And in a journal I have here, there's a news report on, What they call Savior's Day, Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam leader, spoke to a mass of his followers, and he spoke about Barack Obama. He said, quote, You are the instruments that God is going to use to bring about universal change, and that is why Barack has captured the youth, and he has involved young people in a political process that they didn't care anything about. That's a sign. When the Messiah speaks, the youth will hear, and the Messiah is absolutely speaking. And here we have a picture of Michelle Obama at a uh, function of the uh, push coalition with uh, the wife of Farrakhan, Mother Khadija Farrakhan, and they are uh, circled. And my question is, what respected American politician in any of our history has consistently and knowingly been associated or involved with known terrorists anti-Semites, anti-Zionists, unrepentant terrorists, Marxists, and race baiters like Obama has. If there were a white candidate who had gone to a church where the pastor was a member of the Klan, who served on numerous boards and organizations with known white supremacists, whose wife was also connected with the same people in her business and law firm, and who had received the endorsement of the Aryan Brotherhood, the Ku Klux Klan, and other white supremacist organizations, he would be all but crucified and stoned in the public square. But the news media doesn't investigate anything, say anything. They just give him a clean sweep. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we must recognize as believers that God is in control. As dark as the political scene may look, the light of God's grace shines just as bright today as it ever had. And again, the founding fathers had wisdom for us in times like this. John Jay said, We must go home to be happy. And our home is not in this world. Here we have nothing to do but our duty. All that the best men can do is to persevere in doing their duty to their country and leave the consequences to him who made it their duty, being neither elated by success, however great, nor discouraged by disappointment, however frequent and mortifying. John Jay was, a president, uh, was one of the presidents of the Continental Congress, first chief justice, contributed to the Federalist Papers, and was a founder of the American Bible Society. John Hancock, one of the first signers of the Declaration of Independence and also a governor of Massachusetts, said, Whilst we are using the means in our power, let us humbly commit our righteous cause to the great Lord of the universe, who loveth righteousness and hateth iniquity, And having secured the approbation of our hearts by a faithful and unwearied discharge of our duty to our country, let us joyfully leave our concerns in the hands of him who raiseth up and pulleth down the empires and kingdoms of the world as he pleases. He, too, was a governor of Massachusetts. And Samuel Adams wrote that the man who is conscientiously doing his duty will ever be protected by that righteous and all-powerful being and when he has finished his work, he will receive an ample reward. Jeremiah 17:5 tells us, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitation. But blessed is the man who trusts In the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. And that needs to be our focus, not on what is happening politically, but on the fact that God is in control and our trust is in him. And we should be reminded as we close that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And we need to pray for righteousness in our government. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this study, to be reminded of these principles, to see how they worked their way out in the uh, men who were not only dedicated to this country, but were first and foremost dedicated to you and the truth of your word, uh, which found expression in the legal documents in the founding of this nation. Father, we recognize that we are to serve you to the very best of our ability, to be as involved as we can within our own spheres in civil government. But that is not the be-all and end-all. It is not our source of stability or happiness. It is only the sphere in which we are temporarily involved, and we need to have our focus on our destiny, our eternal home, and on how we can live today to serve you in light of that future destiny, that we be not discouraged by whatever happens and transpires in this next election. For we know that this world is passing away and that we are simply here to serve you, to proclaim the gospel, to be a witness in the angelic conflict, and to glorify you in everything that we say and do. And if we do that, we have done our duty, and we will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We commit these things to, in our country and our nation to your hands.